Well, what, what, what an incredible week. Um, uh, on top of that, I didn't say this before, but uh, those, those kids raised more than $8,000 um, to get the gospel. Actually, with uh, Kurt Breland, our uh, pastor of missions at First Norfolk, um, he is going to have a really cool ministry in Vietnam. And so to get the gospel into the community uh, through helping them build a technology center. And because we were able to do that, uh, the person who oversees that particular uh, school said, you can come in and do whatever you want. And Kurt was like, wait, so what if we did like, you know, a study on like why we do Easter in America or like why we do Christmas in America? He said, yeah, do whatever you want. And so it's just such an incredible thing to see God work. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 4 is where we'll be uh, this morning. And there's something um, uh, that if you've been here before, I don't think I've had to wear glasses here at, uh, at, at Volvo yet. It's because, number one, uh, I'm getting old. And second, when I get tired, my eyes start to just get a little fuzzy. It's, it started actually a couple of years ago. Um, I, I started to notice my computer screen was fuzzy. And I thought it was just way out of focus or something. And I thought my computer was broken. And then I looked at my phone. And then I thought my phone was broken. And then I thought, man, maybe like my windshield in my car is dirty, you know. And then I started to think, maybe it's not all of these things. Maybe it's me. And so I went to the doctor, the eye doctor, whatever they're called. And she said, well, sorry to tell you this, but you need glasses. And here's what happened. When I put my glasses on for the first, like, if you've been here before, if you've been there before, um, and looking around, many of you do, or you're wearing contacts, like, you didn't know what you didn't see until you saw it clearly, right? I mean, it's like brand new. Like, I had, I, in fact, for the last three months, I've been here for three months now, for the last three months, I thought, like, I thought you guys were just, like, okay-looking people, you know? (laughs) I mean, you're not, like, bad-looking people, but, like, yeah, you're just okay-looking. But this morning, I'm like, man, you're good-looking, right? I can see you good. Now, my wife is always beautiful and radiant, and that even goes beyond my blurry vision. But you guys have some work to do when I don't have my glasses on. Uh, And so I'm telling you all that to say, number one, uh, today I'm the oldest I've ever been. It's not my birthday. It's just how life works. Time marches on, right? And then with that, on top of that, what Peter is doing in the book of First Peter is he's helping those who are receiving suffering through trials see something that's been in front of them the entire time. He's helping them begin to refocus and see their suffering through the lens of the gospel. In fact, look at First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, of chapter 4, rather, beginning in verse 12. Peter writes to them, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What Peter's going to do in this text, what we're going to see today, is that Peter is going to challenge those who were enduring great trials and difficulty because they are now followers of Christ. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, the elect Uh, 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 exiles of the dispersion, Uh, the idea we learned several weeks ago that they had become Christians and they had become 
uh, uh, exiles. They didn't belong where they were, not because they had gone somewhere new, but because the fact of them being a Christian made them different than the culture around them that they used to be like. And so this, because of this transition of becoming a Christian, and now I am a follower of Christ and I can't do what I, what I used to do, and I can't go where I used to go, and I go places I never would. Some of you would say it's even a miracle that on Sunday morning at 11.30 a.m. you are sober in a church right now, right? I mean, you just think about the miracle of what God's done in your life that now as a follower of Christ, you're, you're not who you used to be. And in the middle of all of that, what used to be okay and, not, uh, and, and well-received, now as a follower of Christ, they're not being well-received and they're enduring trials and suffering. In fact, the word trial, fiery trial here, and then down in verse 19 and all throughout this text and all throughout the book of 1 Peter, Peter, trial and suffering are used interchangeably. And this this word trial, it doesn't mean uh, that they're being tested to find out if they've made the cut, but rather it's being revealed what they're actually made of. And that's a big difference. And what is this fiery trial? Look at how it's just described, even in verses 12 through 19. It's, it's not strange. He says, don't be surprised by it. This is common. In fact, continuing on down, even into verse 15 and 16, it's, you're not being on trial. You're not, receiving, you're not suffering because of, of sin. Down in verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will, that God's designed this in a follower of Christ. And here's what we know as followers of Christ. That's, man, probably really different perhaps from how you may have been taught, hopefully not, but it's pretty prominent in our culture, how you've been taught being a Christian now means that as a follower of Christ, you bear the name and the very character and the image of Christ in you who himself suffered deeply. And you now, as a follower of Christ in chapter 2, were called a, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, that you are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, that you, you weren't a people, and now you are a people. You did not have mercy, and now you have the mercy of God, that you're completely new as a priest of God, designed to represent God to the people around you and re- represent the people around you to God in prayer and in action and, 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 and uh, interceding for them. And the kingdom of uh, a kingdom of priests not accepted in this worldly kingdom. Y'all, it's like super hard to be a Christian. And it's really normal to suffer. You see, Christians suffer because all people suffer. But what Christians suffer for is so radically different. And this is a new concept sometimes for us because we often believe that we should not endure any type of pain or foul smells or food we don't want to taste or places we don't want to be or Okay, so I moved here, and we don't have Verizon Fios in my neighborhood. We have Cox. And I'll keep my opinion on that to the side because it goes out, like, every third day. But my point is, like, when it buffers, like, we don't have internet, and it just, like, you know, Netflix is playing a little slower than it should be. 
I'm so frustrated at that because I have paid to have internet in my life, right? Like, like it just that's where we live in our culture of I'm enduring this, you know, waiting for 30 seconds for my Netflix show to show up. Or, heaven forbid, they released a show and not the whole season and just one in that. Huh, not watching it until the whole season comes out, right? Like, like that's where we exist in our culture. And it seems so odd to us that, wait a minute, you're telling me that as a follower of Christ, I ought to endure suffering? I'm not telling you you ought to. I'm telling you if you follow Christ long enough in the right way long enough, you will endure suffering. And I'm not saying that because it's Tim Whitney's opinion. I'm saying that because the Bible says that you are so uniquely different. That when suffering comes, when the fiery trial comes, do not be surprised. Just think of the Bible overall. And if you're new uh, or don't have a church background, I'm going to just walk you through some key characters in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it begins with Cain making a proper sacrifice before, or Abel making a proper sacrifice to God. And so his brother Cain kills him. You then go on and you have this guy named Noah who was righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And so God told him to build a boat for 120 years. He took a 13-month deployment with no port stops on a boat full of animals. Uh, maybe you can relate to that. And, uh, uh, and finally landed. I mean, you think he was a little crazy afterwards? He did some crazy things. Like, Noah suffered. When this guy named Abraham is raised up, and God says, you're mine, so get to walking. I'll tell you when you get there. And he left and went. He had a son named Isaac, who was almost slain so that God could see and show Abraham that his test was that his faith was indeed uh, 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 strong. Isaac's father was Abraham, and his wife was named Sarah. She was barren for decades even though God had said that she would have a child. And then you go on and you have uh, Jacob. Isaac had children who fought literally their entire lives, stealing from one another and all that. You have Jacob, who's one of Isaac's son, who fled from Esau because he stole his birthright and just, I mean, he stole it. There's no way to steal it in a good way, in a bad way. And so he fled and went and worked for his uncle Laban, and then Laban was stealing from Jacob for years, and on top of that, promised him uh, this uh, a daughter to marry. Found out that on the wedding night he swapped daughters. Jacob married the wrong daughter, had to work seven more years for the right daughter, while Laban was stealing from him over and over and over again. And then went back to where Esau was, his brother who didn't like him. Like this whole this whole process is just messed up. You're probably feeling really good about your family right now, right? <laughs> When just going through, like, Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, was sold into slavery because his brother said, we'll make more money if we don't kill him. And then Joseph, while in slavery, was thrown into jail for something he did not do. And then God's people were brought into Egypt. We know how that went. Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, that whole thing, right? Like, let my people go. And his, God's people suffered. God raised up Moses. Do you know how Moses' life began? Because the culture, the Egyptian culture, wanted to suppress God's people because they were growing in number by murdering all the babies. His life began in a basket so he would not get murdered. But you know what he did 40 years later? He murdered somebody. 
And then he fled out into the wilderness, got married, was there for 40 years, and then led God's stiff-necked people for another 40 years, and then never made it into the promised land because he had anger issues, and that's simplifying it pretty big. Like, we go through this scripture over and over and over, and do you know what we find when we look into the Old Testament of examples that God has given us of faith to follow? We find all of them suffered. You're probably going like, Tim, that's Old Testament, man. That was like an Old Testament thing. (laughs) Did you know all 12 disciples of Jesus deeply suffered and were killed for their faith, except one, John? who history tells us was boiled in a pot of oil, which was supposed to kill him. He just didn't die. And then he was banished to an island to die for the rest of his life. Or what about the Apostle Peter, right? Or Paul. Uh, Paul himself, who literally, Scripture tells us over and over, he he suffered great labors in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. Innumerable imprisonments, countless beatings, Often near death, five times he received at the hands of his persecutors, 40 lashes, last one. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked and spent a day and a night adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false believers, and toil and hardship. Though many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from these things, he had a constant anxiety for the churches. God himself, in 2 Corinthians 12, gave him a thorn in the flesh, something painful. He was suffering that God would not relieve in order to keep him from being prideful. And his only answer, even though Paul prayed over and over and over, was, my grace is sufficient for you. My power will be made perfect in your weakness. And you might say, well, that's the Old Testament and that's the New Testament apostles. And that's like Paul and like big named people. But like, I'm just a normal Christian. In Second Peter chapter, in First Peter chapter 2, look at verse 21. Peter writes to the very people we're looking at. For to this you have been called. Okay, so now with scripture, we don't have to wiggle out of this, right? For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Here's what I want you to see. That if you are enduring suffering, I want you to know that that doesn't make it easy, but man, it does make it normal. And if you're a follower of Christ and you are enduring suffering or may endure suffering or will endure suffering one day. Basically, like, if you're human, it doesn't make it less shocking, but man, it it does mean that it shouldn't be surprising. That it doesn't make it fun, but I'm telling you, all the examples in Scripture that God gives us of who we're to pattern ourselves after, man, they sure do have fruitful lives, don't they? And so if you're in here this morning and... You are suffering as a follower of Christ. I just want to invite you, according to Scripture, welcome to the club. You're not abnormal. You are entering into a beautiful group of saints, all of whom suffered. And if you are a follower of Christ and you can't think of a time you've 
ever had to go through some hardship as a follower of Christ, this passage is going to be super tough. In fact, Paul told a young pastor named Timothy who was over a church in 2 Timothy 5, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. But what is God doing in our suffering? You see, there's a branch of theology out there that would teach you that really is the hinge point of our culture, that God exists to make me awesome and give me what I want and for everything to be good. The fancy phrase would be narcissistic, optimistic deism, that God exists for me, for everything to work out well, and that's why God exists. But then you read the Bible, right? And then you look at real life. And you realize, like, work is hard. Why don't people accept me as a follower of Christ at work? It's just, it's just hard. It's toy. I don't want to go to work today. Or, like, marriage is hard. Like, I don't, I don't want to act married today. Or, like, life is hard. Or, man, that sin that so easily entangles me that eats my lunch every single time. I am struggling, and I can't figure out how to conquer it. It is taken, it is taken me to the bank. That is hard. If you are struggling as a Christian, this passage has something to say to you about why God allows his people to endure suffering, and not just allows them to, but brothers and sisters in Christ calls us to. And the reason is this. In fact, if you're going to write down one passage of Scripture or one uh, thought this morning about this passage of Scripture, it would simply be this. That Christian suffering helps us look up to see the worth of Christ, the worthiness of the Christian, and the trustworthiness of the Creator. That Christian suffering helps us look up. Everybody say, look up. Helps us get our eyes focused. Helps us see things that were right in front of us the entire time. Helps us look up to see the worth of Christ, the worthiness of the Christian, and the trustworthiness of the Creator. In fact, look at how he goes here. And in fact, that's just how I function. Those are the points of this sermon, the worth of Christ. And so watch how suffering in 1 Peter chapter 4, now going on into verse 13, shows us the worth of Christ. Look at what Peter writes here in 1 Peter 4 verse 13. He says, But, okay, so don't be surprised by these fiery trials when they come upon you to test you. That word, te- that word test, man, it's not shown. Trial is something you're enduring. Test, it's not trying to see if you made it or not, but to show you what you're made of. There's a difference there. Don't be surprised, but, verse 13, rejoice. Okay, Paul, so Peter's saying, but out loud joy. Have out loud joy when these things happening. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. How many of you have been to a wedding before, right? We've, we've seen them, or you've seen them on TV, or 
you've heard of such things, a, uh, or you've, I don't know, experienced one on your own or whatever. We've all been seen this picture before, right? I, I get a chance to go to a lot of weddings because... Yeah, it's my job. And so uh, what usually happens is, you know, you're like back there with uh, the groom and, you know, he's generally some sweaty 20-year-old kid in a rented tux, you know, super nervous. And so he's just talking with him like this is super exciting. And so then we kind of walk out and, you know, he walks up. And then however the, the, is it processional or recession? They all come out and then they line up. And, uh, and that's awesome. And um, everyone just kind of sits. But no one's really there for the, for the processional, right? Like, no one's impressed by a sweaty 20-something guy in a rented tux, right? Like, he's just there. And, and then something amazing happens. The doors close, and they play whatever song. And then the doors open up, and then what happens? The bride comes in, doesn't she? And in that moment, everything that's going on around simply stops or does not matter unless the greenery behind you catches on fire, which is just a story sometime. But (laughs) but when that happens, when that happens in a normal wedding where there's no fires, the most beautiful thing in that room is that bride. She... She has a glory about her. Glory is a word in the Bible. It means uh, weight or beauty or value. There's, when she comes in, she is more beautiful than everything. In fact, everyone stands and looks at her, right? Like no one, when the groom walks in, goes, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like no one cares about that. But every time, the entire time, you tell she is beautiful and he just just lucky. Like that's about how it works. There's a, there's, a, there's a beauty and there's a, there's a value there. In fact, I, when I um, talk with young couples, generally what happens is that uh, the dude who's been thinking about the wedding for all of 12 seconds uh, doesn't really know what's going on. And uh, the, 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 the soon-to-be bride has been thinking about it since she was like, you know, three or two with like a white towel on her head getting out of the bath. Like just thinking about this moment. And so, like, like she has figured out the budget and figured out how much she can possibly spend on this wedding dress, every penny you'll give her, and then moms and dads, even more, right? Like, just, just how it works. The, 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 the value of that moment exceeds all things. And I have to be careful with this one, but the, the weight that she carries in the room... <laughs> The weight of the moment where it's all focused and centering around her. That's, that's what glory means. That when the bride enters, her, her glory fills the room. I'm telling you all that to say, look at verse 13 and see how Peter connects suffering now with joy. And he does this in verse 13 that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The Bible tells us that there is no one who has greater worth, no one who has greater beauty, no one who has greater weight than God, who is the king of glory. 
And the very glory of God is in Jesus Christ, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And when we beheld Jesus, we beheld glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That God is pointing us in our suffering, preparing us to know better the unmatched weight and beauty and value of Christ in our suffering. That when we see that, we rejoice. And the way that he does that in verse 13 is rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That in this passage, God connects sharing the sufferings of Christ with knowing him and being rejoicing when his glory is revealed. How in the world does that work? This word, um, share, it's the common word, you've, I don't know if you heard, it's koinonia, like that's, it means like fellowshipping, like doing life together. And Peter is saying this to those who are suffering in this passage. If you're suffering for Christ, you're suffering just like the one whose name you bear. You're sharing in the very suffering that he has. And he's doing something beautiful because one day all of his full full weight, value, and beauty is going to be revealed. And you're going to go, man, everything else that I have gone through, everything else in life that you allowed me to suffer through, to realize it's probably not about my job. It's probably not about my income. It's probably not about having the best family ever. It's probably about way different things. In fact, it's all about Jesus Christ. And in that moment, when Jesus's glory is revealed, you go, that is magnificent. And everything else has no value compared to this moment of seeing Jesus Christ. That's suffering. Man, when you realize that your health is not going to always be with you, When you realize that the job that you slaved for replaces you in two weeks after they let you go. When you realize that the person that you placed your life and your hope in fails you again and you endure suffering. When you realize that it does not matter how things smell or how things taste or how people talk or how people act. All of the things we work really hard at to impress People in this world, when you realize that when all of that is stripped away and we suffer in this life and we see what actually matters, you go, that is real beauty. You realize everything else is like a, a Willem, no one's going to be impressed when you marry Ashlyn. No one, by you, right? You're going you're, you're gonna to realize in that moment that it is all, thanks for letting me pick on you, thanks for he didn't let me, I just did it. But like, he's an intern here. Okay, so anyways, here's the point, right? I'm going to move on. You guys get the point, right? But suffering helps us see that. It helps us see the worth of Christ. Now, that doesn't make it easy. But man, when Paul's sitting in a jail cell and he, he's going, man, I'm in chains. But the gospel's now made known to the guard here and man, what am I going to do for me to, to live as Christ and to die? I get Christ. Either way, I, I get Jesus. Suffering helps you see what actually has worth, and there's nothing that has worth any more than Jesus Christ. And in that, you go, are you kidding me? Bring it on. I'm going to rejoice. Not only does suffering help us see the worth 
of Christ, but oh, suffering helps us see the worthiness of the Christian. Uh, in fact, um, the way that this works, you know there's a difference between worth and worthiness, right? So worth is something that actually has some type of value inherent in itself. Uh, for example, if I had cash, once again, I never carried cash. Which, um, if I had cash and I had a dollar bill, you would notice that that thing is backed up by something that actually has worth. Its worthiness is assigned by the treasury, which is given value by the U.S. economy. If you take a random piece of paper and write down $10 on it, it's not worth a thing. And so in this process, look at what happens here, what gives you worthiness as a follower of Christ in suffering. In fact, continuing on in verse 14, uh, Peter writes, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler, yet, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in his name. And so what Peter does in verse 14 is he begins to tell them an example of, listen, if you, if you endure suffering through insults for the name of of Christ, he says, you are blessed. It's showing you actually have the favor, the name of God on you. That you in your suffering for Christ are now, others are now confirming what you are confessing. That I'm a Christian and I bear his name. And on top of that, continuing on, he says, but uh, the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter says, listen, if you're enduring suffering and you're getting insults and you're struggling through this life, all that's going on is that all of those around you are saying, you are a Christian. And you're going, I am a Christian. Even to the point where others are saying, you are, you are a Christian. I'm insulting you for that. That your worth is now in Christ and you have the worthiness that he has placed on you with his beautiful name and his beautiful spirit. But Peter warns them, he says, don't just suffer for, the su for suffering's sake. That's just weird. That's not what we're called to do. In fact, he gives a list here of things that we're not to suffer for in verse 15. He says, don't, don't suffer as a, as a uh, uh, verse 15, as a murderer. Take life. We know what that is. Or as a thief. I just I take things that I, don't belong to me. It, it happens all the time. You get in trouble for it, right? Or as, a, or as an evildoer, when he's just kind of stirring things up, or as a, or as a meddler. That's a, that's a fun word. It's kind of three words together, which means one who ever sees others stirring things up, right? So, like, I'm, I'm not actually the one doing it, but I'm going to passive-aggressively help others do it. You know what I mean? Like, if you're suffering for that, you're just plain suffering. But... Man, suffering because you are a follower of Christ in a culture that does not know Jesus is a beautiful moment where everyone around you is helping you remember that the very name of Christ, the very spirit of Christ is 
on me. That you get to be a very living exposition of the gospel to those around you as they say, why in the world aren't you going out with us? Why in the world won't you talk about your spouse like that? Why in the world won't you let your kids play Sunday morning soccer? Why in the world do you not invest your money, all that you've given in these things, and said give it to a church? Why in, the, why in the world do you not look at those things or act that way or talk that way? Why in the world don't you do that? You're not going to be like this because you're one of those Christians. And the Bible says that's a good thing. Because in that suffering, they're confirming you follow Jesus. You go, yeah, I have his name and I have his spirit. And he has given me a worth greater than anything that you could take away. You see, suffering is a beautiful way. Not just that we see the worth of Christ, but that we we see the worthiness of the Christian. That I get to do as my Savior did and suffer for the sake of holiness. Bearing his name, being filled with his spirit, doing his work. And for that, if I suffer then I suffer and that is okay because everyone around me is helping me see that that is my life and I am okay for suffering for the sake of Jesus. But in the middle of all that, let's be real. It's hard to suffer for the name of Christ. In fact, today, that's why we kind of shifted the service around a little bit because In just a little while, we're going to go into a time where we're going to worship at the end of the service rather than at the beginning so we can understand the reality of suffering and do what we ought to do to our suffering. Give God the praise and the glory and the honor. But the reason that we can do that is, of course, because there's great worth in in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches us. And in our suffering, we get to see Man, everything else around me does not have worth. Jesus does have worth. Take everything away. Jesus is all I have. He's worth everything and more. In suffering, you get to see that you have, that you have been given value and worth at the very name of Christ and the very spirit of Christ is on you and dwells in you that everyone around, even as they're mocking you, they're affirming what you are confessing. That I'm a Christian and I follow Jesus. And you can do all of that, we'll see in verse 17 through 19. Because God, who holds your soul in his hand, is trustworthy. That Christian suffering helps us look up and see the worth of Christ and the worthiness of the Christian And now the trustworthiness of our creator. Look at verse 17. Here's what he says. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin. Okay, so that's a phrase where Peter's pointing to saying like, it's time. There has been something that has happened where there is now a judgment, a decision to begin. It's already happened right now. There's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, there was a moment in time that revealed of those who would be in the household of God, a decision that would be made. What will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter, in a roundabout way, says there was 
there was a deciding factor that showed those who were of the the, uh, household of God, those who were a part of God's family, and those who were not. And thankfully, he gives us verse 18 to help clarify. He says, and if the righteous is barely saved, some of your translations say scarcely or hardly saved, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Uh, Years ago, I shared a little bit about this uh, a couple of months ago, uh, when I was stationed in California, I uh, blew my bonus on a motorcycle. And that was awesome. And so, um, uh, and so I had never owned a motorcycle. Uh, about six days into owning a motorcycle, we went on this command ride uh, through mountains and valleys in California, which was awesome, uh, until I wrecked. And so we were coming around a turn, and there was some gravel that was kicked up onto the road. And um, I didn't know what I was doing, and I hit the gas as I was going, and I hit too much, and I hit the gravel, and I started sliding toward the bank. And if you've been in mountain roads, you know, there's kind of like a three or four foot thing that's of soft dirt and gravel uh, to kind of tell you like, hey, you're going off, but when you're going straight toward it, there's really nothing you can do. And so because I'd put everything I owned and then went into a bunch of debt for this motorcycle that I could not afford... Uh, I didn't want to lose it. So when I hit the guardrail, I pushed the motorcycle so it wouldn't go over. And I went over instead. Now, as I was going over, I thought maybe that wasn't the right choice, you know, because uh, I'm very breakable and um, motorcycles are replaceable. And I don't know how to replace myself if I die. It just doesn't work like that. Right. But then as I was flying, I realized that on this cliff, there was one strong tree that had grown out the side. And thankfully, literally by the grace of God, I uh, had pushed off in a way that I was going to hit this one tree. And so I pushed off and I was flying upside down. I hit it with my back and then slid down and landed on my head. But because of the angle of the cliff with the tree growing out, I was kind of stuck like a turtle, you know, like upside down on my head and could not, I mean, I just, I couldn't do anything about it. So once they figured out how to get me back up and I realized that I was in a little bit of trouble because my XO was also on that ride, the guy who was way above me because I was an E3, uh, uh, was on that ride. We started talking and they said, dude, you almost died, you know? So you, you barely made it out of that one alive, Right? Because had you not been caught by the one tree that could save you, you would have been toast. That's the idea behind this word, scarcely or barely. It doesn't mean that, like, ah, the gospel kind of squeaked you into heaven, you know. It almost didn't work, but then it did. Jesus' death and resurrection for the atonement of all the sins in the world, like, Sin was heavy, but like Jesus was right there. He edged it out by just a little bit. No. It means that there's one unique way that the only way that is the moment of the decision that's been made of those who are in and those who are out. And there's only one way that all those who are not of the household of God, who are the ungodly in verse 18, what will become of them? Nothing, because there's no other way to be saved. Those who are saved are uniquely one way saved by God himself. And this idea that Peter's reminding them of, listen, there is only one way to be saved and God has saved you that way. Look at verse 19. Therefore, based on that idea, 
Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Here's what he reminds them of. He says, listen, the gospel is the only thing that saved you. You found worth in Jesus Christ, who is the greatest value of all things. That when you suffer, you're associating with him because he himself suffered. And you now as a follower of Christ, man, you will suffer. And in that suffering, you realize that God's name is on me. The spirit of God is in me. That the one way that saves, I have been saved. And those who have not been saved do not know the one way. And now in verse 19, if I can trust God with my salvation, I can trust him with my situation. If I can trust God with my eternity, I can trust him with my presence, with my present. That the very one who holds their soul, my soul in his hand, my faithful creator, now has my suffering as well. And there's a beautiful trustworthiness that comes with understanding that it is God himself who's in the middle of this. And I can trust God with my salvation. I can trust him now with this situation. Suffering helps you see that God himself is so much greater than anything else that you can go through. That in the end, just as he saved you who were far from God, who, had, who were dead in sin, who were old and needed to be made new, who were dead and need to be, needed to be made alive in Christ, just as he saved you there, overcame all things in your life, he can overcome this as well. And even if he doesn't, In this life, look at the God who guards your soul. He's got something going on bigger than this. It's interesting you would think that Peter would tell a group of people that's suffering, don't worry, it won't last much longer. You would think he would tell them like, all right, well, here's how you get out of it. But no, instead he says, you know what? You get to... Know Jesus even greater through your suffering. You would think that he would begin to dissect and say, you're suffering? You should probably check your heart. See something in your past maybe you didn't repent of or whatever. Maybe that's what God's trying to get you for now because you made a mistake when you were 20 and 20 years later, you know? That's what we do. He says, no, 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 no. When you're insulted, when you suffer for Christ... It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It means you're being confirmed. That very name of Jesus and the very spirit of God dwells in you. You would think that he would begin to give them advice on how to, how to get out of this thing and kind of fit in a little better just to relieve the suffering for Christ. But he says, no, 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 no. The one that you can trust is not your ability to maneuver out of the situation, but you trust in God in whom you've entrusted your soul. If you're in here and you're a follower of Christ this morning, this is so beautiful. Because as a follower of Christ, we can look at this and go, okay, I'm suffering, and that's okay. This is hard, but hard isn't bad. Hard is hard, and that's okay. I'm struggling with this right now. It's not connected to something that I did a few years ago and maybe God hasn't forgiven me or maybe I didn't repent right or maybe I don't, uh, maybe I'm not as good as I thought. All of that might 
might be true about what you did and didn't do. But in this moment, you're, you're probably just suffering because suffering's normal as a follower of Christ. As a follower of Christ, we get to look at the situation and go, okay, I'm suffering. But my God is so much greater than this. And I trusted him with my salvation. I can trust him with this situation. If you're not a follower of Christ, honestly, your suffering is the result of being in a broken and busted up world. But unlike a follower of Christ, you have no hope of relief. Like it might get better for a little bit, but it will not be better forever. In fact, the only way to conquer all death and all suffering and all trials is through the one way by which all are saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by whom we see all things in life pale in comparison to the very worth that he is. And as a follower of Christ, should you become one, he gives you his worth because his very name goes on you. His very spirit lives within you. And when God sees you, he does not see your past. He sees his presence. And that's the difference. So what are we going to do with this? Well, the band's going to come up and we're going to worship as we consider what we're suffering for. If you're a follower of Christ, why don't you just take some time to maybe take the weight off your shoulders of what you're currently going through, somehow attached to some past thing, and maybe realize that the struggle that you have, you're supposed to have because you're a follower of Christ, and you, it's hard. That the life that you're called to live now is not the life that you used to live. And so because of that, you have this battle, and it's hard, and so... Man, just preach the gospel over that. God, you, you're worth more than anything in this life. Help me to see that. And I'm struggling with that right now. If you're not a follower of Christ, I would ask you during this worship time to begin asking the question, what is the end of my suffering? And I want you to know that there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. That there's just one way. And then all of us together, let's wrestle through these last worship songs with the idea that if I should be suffering and I'm not, or have never, that at some point, like we, we, just, we just should, why is that? And that is a guilt trip, but rather as a, okay, sometimes we don't go for being all out as a follower of Christ because we're afraid of the consequences. So give that fear to the Lord. Say, God, help me see that you have a purpose in my suffering. And ask God what it would look like to endure that for his name. Again, not because you want to be a thief and take things that you ought not to take, or a murderer taking life, or a meddler and stirring things up unnecessarily. Not because you're obnoxious in culture, but because you're a Christian in culture. It's just going to endure suffering. So let's pray, and then let's stand together, and let's worship.
Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being so good to us. Oh God, we pray that you would bless these last few minutes as we sing songs to you. God, I ask that you would be real to us as we look at our suffering and sing praises to you as the only one who saves. Lord, in this time, help us to see Jesus as more worthy than all things around us. God, I pray that in this time, you would help every person in here to find their worthiness in the name of Jesus that you've given them and your very spirit that lives within them. Father, I pray that you would help us to grow even greater in our faith and in in, in how trustworthy you are to guard our lives and guard our souls. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray.